Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 45 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Eric Lindner, author of the forthcoming book, Tiger in the Sea, The Ditching of Flying Tiger 923 in the Desperate Struggle for Survival. An attorney businessman and Washington, D.C. native, for the past six years, Lindner has been teaching ethics in action at Georgetown University, a course that dissects the NASA Challenger disaster. His critically acclaimed 2009 book, Hospice Voices, Lessons for Living at the End of Life, was largely inspired by Lindner's time as a hospice volunteer. But today, we're primarily going to be discussing the fate of the September 23, 1962 Flying Tiger passenger charter flight from McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey to Frankfurt, Germany, using a four-engine propeller and piston-driven Lockheed Super Constellation. Linder joins us from San Luis Obispo, California. Eric, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you very much for having me here, Bruce. First off, uh, let's refresh listeners' memory uh, with this four-engine propeller-driven Lockheed Super Constellation. At the time, in the 50s, it was a, a mainstay of TWA and, and considered a very glamorous aircraft. Yes, it, it, it was. I mean, it seems to me there were two kind of um, titans going at it. There was uh, Juan Tripp with Pan Am and there was Howard Hughes with TWA. So uh, they used different aircraft. And this was Howard Hughes's aircraft. He designed it in 1937. And it was upgraded several times. And um, uh, so it was still a very, very glamorous kind of uh, aircraft, uh, certainly the most glamorous uh, apex of the prop piston plane. Obviously, it wasn't just a pretty plane, and most pilots thought it was beautiful, glamorous, but it was it was absolutely peak performance, peak, you know, the, the efficiency of the propellers and the power of the engines and the range and fuel efficiency. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely state-of-the-art, still in the 50s. But on this particular moonless night, there were 76 crew and passengers on board, including four crew in the cockpit a pilot, a co-pilot, a navigator, and, and radio operator, and an engineer. And it was a radio operator, but it was the, uh, the term, it was flight engineer. He was a flight engineer. The Super Connie was considered a, quote, a flight engineer's airplane because it was so much operated. It was really a, a primarily a partnership between the pilot or the captain and the flight engineer. But you're right. So they started off. He got clearance at uh, 11,000 uh, feet, you know, two miles up, hit really bad weather. Um, and a couple hours after leaving Gander, Newfoundland, and uh, even though there was no indication in the weather reports, the meteorological reports of any bad weather, and he tried to ascend out of it, and he did ascend out of it. He had to stair-step his way up to 21,000 feet, so double the flight up to four, mi- four miles, and um, uh, at two and a half hours, I think, uh, two, two hours and uh, maybe 20 minutes after leaving Gander, Newfoundland, um, that's when that's when the problem started. But you're right. It was a, a moonless night. The moon kept coming and going at certain times. But when they most needed it, the moon was hidden. Uh, it was dark. Uh, you know, it, 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 they, they left. And by the time the first engine went out um, or uh, burst into fire, it was eight o'clock. The um, it was raining off and on. Uh, squalls were up to 65 miles an hour. So Cat One Hurricane is 74. So very, very hailstones. 
slamming into the so it was very challenging as a passenger and a crew member up and down and being battered and um and all the while looking out the uh the window these blue conical flames you know coming out with the occasional orange spark and red and yellow spark coming out so uh but before the fire warning they went through um uh, heavy hail and wind but to be lashing rain but to be clear are you saying it was actually a it was a new moon so there was no moon or was it just that there was a lot of cloud cover that that above above well them no it? you could see when the cloud when there was cloud uh, uh when the clouds dissipated you could see the moon but they rarely dissipated it was very thick cloud cover most of the night okay so there were yeah there were moments during the evening when the me- when the you know clouds dissipated but there was a moon it was just covered by the clouds and uh unlike today uh where you typically get above all the clouds uh, uh 21,000 right. feet would you'd still be in the thick of it that's 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 right it's 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 considerably lower than the typical uh, cruising altitude of the, of the jets today correct let's talk about how times have changed since those early days of of atlantic long distance crossings First, you had to refuel in Gander, Newfoundland uh, for this particular aircraft and then bring on extra crew. I mean, we had to switch out the, the captain, right? Correct. You had to switch out the captain. Captain Murray deadheaded up from, from Newark, the, the East Coast head of Flying Tiger, and the captain before him was named Captain Lucio, and he swapped out with Captain Lucio because according to the FAA regs on, on flying, continuous flying by the pilot, they had to swap out. That was too long a flight from McGuire all the way over to Frankfurt. And the flight was uh, about uh, was going to take about 19 hours. Uh, That's correct. That was that from from McGuire to Frankfurt it was supposed to take that long, correct? From Gander to uh, to Frankfurt was was were they going to I think it? it was 14 and a half or something was or 14 15 uh, you know it always depended on the the cruising the cruising speed top cruising speed was generally 330 335 miles per hour. Uh-huh. Um yeah, so it was. I think it was fourteen and a half. Was was the was the uh, flight flight man flight plan? It crashed some five hundred miles off the coast of Ireland during an attempt to at a late night water landing or what is known as a ditching. And of the seventy six on board, sixty eight were passengers, eight were crew, and of that number, only four forty eight survived. The crew was headed up by Captain John Murray, a forty four year old uh, Oyster Bay, Long Island resident. Uh, who finally felt like after this storm he could breathe a sigh of relief, you write in your book. Though he'd just moments ago passed a point of no return, he no longer had enough fuel to return to Gander International Airport some 1,000 miles away. And uh, since leaving Newfoundland three hours earlier, his uh, Lockheed Super Constellation had encountered pounding hail and periodic wind I- and wing icing. But by stair-stepping 10,000 feet above his intended flight plan, and threading the seams of the rocky air, he eluded the storm. The plane's roar decelerated into a 330 mile per hour purr. The passengers thought uh, temporarily breathed a sigh of relief. Was it about was it about three hours into the second leg when they when they started? Yeah, having- yeah, yes, it was. It was. I think they. I think the wheels up were up at 5:19 uh, Greenwich Mean Time, and the uh, the uh, first uh, uh, warning I think was 8:07. 809, something like that. So she's just about three hours. There was a red flash in the cockpit on the instrument panel, panel that caught uh, Captain Murray's eye. A fire in engine number three, inboard on the right side. As you note in your book, almost every prop engine ever manufactured had caught fire at some time or another. 
and most uh, most uh, four-engine planes had safely made it to their destination. It was just, I don't want to say routine, because it wasn't routine, um, but uh, Captain Murray, so Captain Murray flew 4,300 hours in the Connie, and three times he lost, uh, uh, two times he lost two engines, and one time he lost three engines. So not routine. Um, he also flew DC planes, Douglases, and Douglas, you know, the Douglas DC, uh, DC-7, I think I've got it right, DC-8 was the first jet, I believe. Yeah, DC-7, um, yeah. They all had uh, engine problems. They'd lose one, they'd lose two. Um, it, it wasn't a, 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 a colossal issue in losing one engine. It was, you wouldn't, you, you don't think about that today. You think about, oh my gosh, because they're two jet engines, right? That, uh, But uh, it was, it was very... Um, the, the the word they used to say about the Connie's and Doug and the DC uh, planes, you know, it's the best three engine, four engine plane in the sky, because <laughs> you always just almost assume that you might lose one on a long distance flight, which is kind of crazy sounding. But there was more of a a devil may care attitude. I'm not uh, casting any aspersions on Captain Murray, and 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 the audience should know, and I, and I didn't realize this until reading your bio, that you were actually married to Captain Murray's daughter, or one of his daughters. No, you're, you're right. I, I'm, I'm married to his second youngest daughter. But um, yeah, I never met Captain Murray. Never met him. So the first response to any sort of engine trouble in a piston-driven plane is to what? To do a feathering? You kind of you kind of stop the airflow by feathering the propeller? Well, yeah, actually, it, there, there are several steps involved, and it really depends on, on but you're right. You, you want to shut down the fuel. You don't want the fly, fire jumping over the, through the firewall. You do the feathering so that you, you know, you minimize the drag or, or you know, to the, to the absolute minimum. But what, but what, the, and so, let's explain to the listener what you mean by feathering. Well, feathering, the, 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 the feathering is, is to turn the blades um, parallel to the wind to minimize drag because you have to minimize if you if you have a heavy engine dragging and there's no power coming from that engine the plane is fighting to compensate for that basically dead weight like having an anchor on the wing right and so the the and of course I'm not an engineer I'm not a pilot okay this is this is uh, from my pilot uh, friends and experts and former Connie pilots so you turn the blades parallel to the wind so that the wind can whip through and it isn't dragging the plane. And, um, but the, basically the, the first thing you do with a fire warning is to confirm whether there's actually a fire. Um, I, so you eyeball it as much as possible and, and then to determine whether it is a controllable fire or a de minimis fire. I know that sounds like a de minimis fire. Could there ever be such a thing? But there were de minimis, you know, it's like a, uh, the boiler room in a Cunard uh, steamship, you know, it's spitting fire. So, um, so he'd send back the flight engineer. And, and once it's confirmed that there is a fire, then you start running diagnostics and feathering the engine uh, to shut it down so that you can, and then shutting the firewall, that sort of thing to prevent any leapfrogging over any other engines. So there, there was a, there was a set of, uh, you know, there was a set of protocols depending on what is appearing on the, on the, on the control panel and what is uh, appearing by eyeballing it. But in, so, the, um, but in this uh, super constellation model, it was identified as an L1049H super constellation. Correct. What, what, why, why the moniker super constellation? What, what does that mean, the super? 
Well, the first constellation, the, the constellation again was was designed or, or, or on a piece of paper or a napkin or whatever it was by Hughes in 37. And then it became basically was taken over by the army. It was a, it was a bomber, basically the concept. And so after the war, though, the first plane was just called a constellation. Uh-huh. It was a it was a 1049. Then it became a super constellation. It was a larger plane. And they started expanding it so it would be a G or it'd be an H. This was a super constellation. It had larger, better engines. It had more, you know, maybe it, it went to 330 miles per hour instead of 270. So the Air Force One was a constellation. And this was a super constellation. I think the first constellations might have rolled off. I don't have the, the, the numbers here in the late, you know, the late 40s. Uh, mid 40s 46 or something like that or 47 and the, and the super constellation started years later so so it was a bigger plane bigger engines more efficient it had better uh, uh, hybridization capacity to use mail to cargo uh, military stripped down uh, you know uh, from but but just to give a, a metric uh, to comparison at the time when it left McGuire, there were 707s on the on the tarmac, and there were a Connie at the same time. The 707s, I think, could hold 200. The the super, the largest Connie at that time, the Super Connie, could only hold 106. But are you right that the Super Constellation that Murray was actually piloting that day had rolled off a Burbank assembly line on February 20th, 1958? So she was only four and a half years old. You write that the Connie, the Constellation had actually been conceived in 1937 uh, with right. uh, with Howard Hughes's influence uh, he had conceived it as an aircraft for TWA but Lockheed had already stopped producing constellations by the time this flight took place so that's right <laughs> so that should tell you something yeah that 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 certainly that certainly was one of the kind of hypothetical mysteries if you talk about co- controversies um, that you know you're right it, 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 they stopped uh, this plane, I think, rolled off in February. Yeah, it did. And then I think they stopped producing in, you know, April or June or July or August that year. You write that the model was increasingly having mechanical troubles. And you write on March 1562, you know, a few months before this uh, transatlantic flight, two Pentagon charters left California's Travis Air Force Base within minutes of one another. Hours later, one of the flying Tiger Line Connies caught fire, crash in Alaska while the second uh, Tiger flight disappeared without a trace. And there was even a one earlier than that. That's correct. Well, there was the one in the one in November of 61. It was a constellation. It wasn't a super constellation. It was on the tarmac in Richmond. It had uh, uh, Army Rangers, I think 93 Army Rangers on board, and an electrical fire broke out. They told them to wait on the plane for the, um, for the uh, uh, fire engines to come. So they waited on the plane and the fire engines came. And, and I think uh, uh, nine, nine, it was either 70s or 90s. All but three of the crew and passengers died of smoke, uh, of fix, uh, you know, smoke, smoke deaths um, before. So it, it, there was um, but that was a constellation. So that was a, that was older, but still, you know, the basic the basic uh, hull and fuselage design, the basic, you know, the wing design, the triple tail fin design the kind of sloping nature of it almost almost had a pre-concord like slope to it mm-hmm. um and that happened in november in richmond and then in march you're right there were two and as the uh, wreckage and fatalities mounted you write that many wondered why lockheed hadn't stopped making the plane in 48 rather than 58 but then you note that uh, captain murray liked the connie's range ruggedness and versatility 
four powerful powerful engines and five cavernous fuel tanks permitted coast-to-coast travel within the U.S. But was there a, a, a different culture in terms of safety uh, back in the well, cockpit? Well, safety culture, there, there absolutely was a different culture in terms of safety, and I guess from two different dimensions. Uh, but first of all, in terms of the age, from one of your podcasts, you'll remember the, you know, the Tupolev um, was designed in 1956 and still flying. I mean, the TU-95. So, right. so planes can last a heck of a long time. The Connie, Larry, Larry Lefebvre was a, was a pilot, flew with Captain Murray a lot of times. And, I, and, and he said in many respects, it was a lot uh, easier in many respects because it's a lot less complicated to fly the old Connie than it did some of the, some of the jets. His first jet was a, was a DC-8. But um, the culture, you're right. There, was two, there were two things about the culture. First of all, a lot of the people at that time, September 62, there were 559 pilots working for Flying Tigers. And an awful lot of them uh, were fighter pilot, former fighter pilots. So they had, a, they had a certain, you know, culture to them of what was safe and what was risky and what was normal and all that sort of stuff. And, and so that, that whole, it was founded by fighter pilots. So that culture was very much part of it. Now, Murray didn't, wasn't a fighter pilot in World War II, but he was absolutely cut of the same cloth right he was he was rescuing uh, you know uh, people that were that were the from the soviet tanks that went into budapest and he was flying arms into into palestine to help the idf and the israeli air force right before statehood he was flying many jews out he was airlifting stuff to berlin so there was a an acceptable level of risk at that time which was we wouldn't even think about it today right it shut down the whole airport and or the airline and um, and that was actually reflected very much in the in the regulatory uh, apparatus at the time. The NTSB didn't start until 1967. Department of Transportation wasn't founded until 1967. So this um, accident was very much part of the melange, if you will, or the goulash, which led to a lot of those changes. Right. Those changes with Coast Guard, changes with FAA, ch- changes with the Department of Transportation, the NTSB, because there was a, instead of a National Transportation Safety Board at the time, there was something called the Safety Bureau within the Civil Aeronautics Bureau, which was part of the Commerce Department. So it was, as, as a former safety inspector said, we were like the red-haired stepchildren kept in the basement. Basically, we got no resources. No one paid attention to us. The board was interested in new routes and getting schmoozed and wined and dined, you know, flying from National Airport to to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So there was a complete, it was basically just an acceptable level of risk. And that was incorporated in the Warsaw Convention with the strict limits on on, on um, damages paid. In fact, yeah. you, you write the, that the flying was 100 times more dangerous in 1962 than, in, in, uh, than la- all of last year. That's 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 exactly that's exactly right. You have to you have to you have to make some allowances. But basically, when you look at the the uh, uh, millions of miles passenger flown, the statistics are just stunning. The drop it is it was it was depending on how you how you apply certain statistics. I got between ninety three and you know ninety eight percent more dangerous in sixty two um, than it is than it was in, in uh, than it is today. Yeah. When Captain Murray actually did his walk around in Gander, and I assume he did, uh, that's kind of pro forma uh, of any uh, captain to walk around the aircraft and visually inspect it. Did he not wonder about the conditions of the engines? He absolutely did a walk around, and I know that because he testified. Uh, it's, the records are clear they did a walk around, but 
The reason um, he uh, signed off on flying were there were four separate um, uh, corroborating support for taking off. Number one, uh, there was the Atlantic Regional, uh, his supervisor, there are two supervisors, one, the mechanic on board, Frank Sargent, at, pardon me, at Gander, and then the Atlantic Region Supervisor, he spoke with both of them. They said there were absolutely no problems. It was a, quote, uh, a fine flight up from McGuire. So uh, he also spoke with Captain Lucio and the logbook, quote, no problems at all, fine flight. And then the flight engineer, and the flight engineer, this is, this is according to protocol, the responsibility for the airworthiness, I mean, the pilot signs off, but the responsibility for the walk around, the checking the fuel, the checking everything was the flight engineer. He also signed off. So Captain Murray walked around, you know, he tested this, he kicked that, but he checked the four people, uh, one, one of whom just happened to be on board, and all of them said, fine flight, no problems, no incidents whatsoever. Um, that does, though, as you say, conflict with some of the testimony by paratroopers and passengers who who were talking about, you know, spitting engines and rattling engines and loud engines. And, and um, uh, I think all you can really say is surprising as it sounds, it's a little bit like a rattling engine of a, of a drag racer. These big gigantic engines with 13 foot long propellers, they rattled and they smoked and they, and when they burned off fuel, they, they black, it almost coughed. And it was to the uninitiated, it must've been pretty scary, but Murray had flown, you know, 4,300, 4,400, hours on just this plane and he was rated like on eight of them including uh uh amphibians and seaplanes but what's most uh, uh tragic i think about it is that you write although technically a civilian flight flying tigers lines clients for the air force military airport air transport service pretty much everyone en route to frankfurt on this flight was active duty or retired military or a dependent of a, of a military person they were they were all one of those they were all either Active duty, such as the 30 paratroopers, uh, five days. They'd only graduated five days earlier from jump school in Fort Bragg, Army Airborne, 82nd Airborne. Right. Um, there were some Air Force people. There were five Air Force people on board. Um, that's And there were wives or there were uh, there was a newlywed wife of an army sergeant. There was a you know people. Uh, there was a wife and a Hawaii woman and her two children, eleven and nine year old. They were flying over to to uh, reunite with their husband in Germany from Hawaii. They hadn't seen him in two years. So everybody, every passenger on board was connected to the military. You mentioned that one private remarked as he uh, walked past the Lockheed's uh, weather beaten fuselage and four rattling right. engine, and that, those are your words commented to a fellow passenger, is that the plane we're leaving on? That ain't going to make it across. The actual uh, uh, failure rate, the crash rate of Flying Tigers versus Eastern Pan Am and TW, it was better than the industry average, significantly better. But the engines on this uh, aircraft were Wright R3350 duplex cyclone engines, which were considered reliable engines at the time. And then you you had... uh, Hamilton Standard had made the propellers, but you write that they uh, they spit and they rattle, and uh, they smoked, and uh, but that was kind of par for the course, even if they were working. It was it was par for the course. It absolutely it absolutely <laughs> was par for the course. <laughs> you know, it seems so odd, but it 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 really was. Um, they did rattle, they did smoke, and it did it did spit, and when it spat some. Uh, some oil or something, and then a flame would go out. It must have terrified people. 
But uh, you also write that uh, the Super Constellation had a notoriously finicky fire detection system, which was probably one reason Captain Murray didn't automatically panic at the sight of a fire warning on, on the inboard engine on the right. With its miles of wiring and hundreds of electrical components, which were stuffed into 260 panels at the base of the bulkhead at the rear of the cockpit, I mean, it was pretty complicated. The whole, fail, the whole failure rate on, on the Super Constellation was pretty good. They did have electrical, known electrical problems. Right. Well, I, yeah, I, and, and the electrical problem, again, I think that's what, what I mean, uh, that's really what contributed to the, at least the Constellation problem, these, probably this asphyxiation issue. But, yeah, there were, there were lots of false positives and false negatives, you know, different readouts. I mean, uh, you know, I, when I first... <laughs> I'm not a technical person, but I, I worked on, I was using IBM punch cards. You know, that was my computer. And now my iPhone has, you know, more power than the Univac computer. So, but back then they were stuffing wires and wires into the, who knows, you know, get a little moisture in there. You get a little decay, you get, you get, you get uh, expanding and contracting heat temperatures. And all of a sudden something cracks, you know, one tiny little segment of wire cracks. And then you have a, then you have a problem. You have a false positive, you have a false you have a false negative, and I think you're right. The experience that Captain Murray had, uh, uh, so many, so much time in, in the cockpit from first in the late 30s, um, and again, not just not just time in the cockpit, but I mean, he was, I mean, he was, uh, he, he flew, he was shot at, his plane was shot to pieces by Egyptian anti-aircraft battery. He was shadowed and 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 taunted by MIGs over Berlin. So. It was part of his character to kind of just, uh, he was just a kind of an old school, uh, you know, he was a tough guy. He was a tough guy. So, but combined with the having been there before when there were false positives and false negatives, he he would kind of, that's why he sent the flight engineer back to eyeball at first. So uh, at 9.42 p.m. on the night of the flight, another alarm bell rang out and the left inboard engine number two began shooting what you describe as fiery blue-black carbonized fuel globules past the passengers' windows, which uh, I'm sure the passengers were, that would have freaked them out, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to say the least. It did. Pa- uh, Captain Murray didn't have long before the plane crashed headlong into 20-foot waves at 120 miles per hour, but he did try to work the problem. You write that uh, on board, the problem was compounded by the fact, and I, don't, I, I may get the sequence of events off a bit, but you write that on board, the co-pilot uh, had accidentally closed the wrong engine firewall, which started a dangerous chain reaction, and one of the, the good engine's hydraulic systems stopped uh, pumping, the blast air stopped cooling its generator, and fuel and oil stopped flowing to the motor and governor. But this caused the propeller to spin uncontrollably at close to the speed of sound, and now they were two bad engines. Explain how you shut the firewall and, and uh, I for, I've forgotten the co-pilot's name. I think it was Garrity. Yeah, that's, it? that's okay. But it was actually the flight engineer. His name was uh, oh, uh, the flight Jim, engineer. James Garrett. Okay. Garrett. And, okay. Uh, flight engineer. Garrett. And he was, um, he had been furloughed by Eastern. Uh-huh. He was, he was a terrific, everyone said he was terrific. So, you know, union rules, he was the last guy in the last first guy out. So he was furloughed. He, uh, the flying tigers picked him up. He had a great record, but, um, for some reason and, uh, uh, the speculation is because the shutdown procedures and the protocols were different for Eastern and Flying Tigers. He closed the wrong firewall. So he basically shut down, uh, disabled a good engine rather than the bad engine. And that that really catalyzed the uh, 
the crisis and but what it did in terms of the physics of it it's a little bit like you know once you if if you don't have any brake fluid your brakes aren't going to work right? right and so your 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 car is going to be you know you can't control it same sort of thing if you lose the hydro if you if if you lose the two two different things but the governor is is if you lose the governor because the hydraulic fluid's gone um uh then then it starts spinning uncontrollably and and uh you get it you get a flame um but the but the object was to basically cr- uh have a firewall there was a lever you pulled and uh so it basically kept the flames from leaping from one engine to the next but the tragic because you basically needed you needed one engine on each wing initially the first uh, engine problem was noted on the starboard side the right uh, on the right wing uh, right uh, the, the engine uh, the uh, the number three uh, engine the inboard engine right okay correct and then we subsequently there was a another detection of a problem uh, on the port side uh, of the aircraft and that was a number two engine. Is that right? Is that the sequence? That was uh, number two uh, engine had the problem. It, it, it was. It might have been the, the outward one engine. I, it's totally understandable. I and mean, it was so fast in the period of a few minutes, they lost three engines. So, um, so or, that, or two so, engines and so, one was so, sputtering. So, so what? But you're right. It started on the on started three on the, on the right side, uh, and he was supposed to shut down, shut the fuel to that, and he shut the wrong one, and it disabled temporarily one on the left side so you lose two engines you only had two engines basically you had you had two and then three and four problematic engines because they were all weakened and then he tried to restart the one on the on the port side that the had been mistakenly shut down i believe right or not right right and then it didn't work no they were they well well they kept trying uh two of the faulty engines they kept over the period of hours, uh, you know, and um, they had some minor. It would it would come online, then it would then it would you know shut down. It wouldn't last long. They were running analytics the whole time, you know, wondering wondering what in the, what in the heck had happened. Um, so, but meanwhile, it was just putting more and more strain on the engines. You know, fewer engines pulling all that weight. And by so, the um, and by the time they had lost the two engines, it was a fait accompli that. The only way they would make it to a safe landing would be to 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 cut their altitude drastically down to about five thousand feet above the surface of the ocean, and hopefully hopefully make uh, Shannon Ireland or something like that, right? Yes, that's correct. That's exactly what they had to do. They had to they had to uh, uh, go down a, a much lower altitude. Eventually, they got down to five thousand feet, and uh, and the speed was cut down. And um, yeah, the um, the uh, w- what happened here, just to, just to come back to the engine one, what specifically happened? This is remarkable uh, similarity to the Challenger disaster. The the engines were very very sensitive to temperature, uh, and they had seals around it, and it was an exhaust uh, uh, gases would 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 uh, kind of it was a power recovery sort of uh, turbine engine, and when the when the te- when it got too hot, um, it would disintegrate the, the, these seals. So there's a, a kind of similar to it's a little bit different, but same temperature dependent O-rings on the, on the Challenger, and that's what started it all. They determined it was a power, it was a power recovery, a fire in the power recovery turbine, uh, because the seals had been disintegrated by the temperature. But 
You're right. They, going back, they had to they had to go down, and their hope was they that they would make it to Shannon, Ireland, going much slower at a much lower altitude. Do you have any idea what caused the fire initially in the in the number three engine? Well, yeah, I think that's what what caused the fire was, uh, and this is according to Larry Lefebvre, who was flying at the time, um, flying in the '60s and flew with uh, Murray quite often, not on this flight. Uh, he said the power recovery turbine had disintegrated. Uh, 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 and and um, it, it gets so hot it disintegrated the seal, and um, and that created so so the flames the, the heat came out and and caught a fuel vapor and or the exhaust and and that's what started the fire. So it got so hot. Why did it get so hot? Uh, it, well, he said it was extremely sensitive to temperature and um, and probably also temperature vicissitudes, and they, and they had to go up and ascend the rocky air on the high blowers to get up uh, to 21,000 feet. So no one is sure because there was no cockpit reporter, no data flight reporter. So, but um, the, the, the forensics say it was a fire in the power recovery turbine that disintegrated the seal. But what caused the other two engines to go bad after this one? I mean, you had addressed the number, uh, the number three engine, and you had accepted the fact right. that it wasn't going to work. But what caused fire in the other? What caused the fire in the, in the one on the port side? And then, well, you know, it's hard. It's hard to say what caused it. it, it again, there's no way. There's no forensics. The engines are at the bottom of the sea. Um, but don't but, you think that's extraordinarily certain, bizarre? As far as the one that was mistakenly shut down, you know, once you shut something down, it's hard to restart it. Right. But um, I mean, but but, um, but they so, they, but, but the, they don't. They're not really sure why. They, but, they they looked at the forensics. All they could do was look at the paper trail. Right. And uh, there were some signs that there were some issues with maintenance, but there was no, if you will, smoking gun. Um, so no one, it is, it's a mystery. It but don't you think it's bizarre what, that, I mean, it's a bizarre coincidence that you had a fire on one engine and then the, and then a subsequent fire on the, on the other side, on the, on the port side, you have a fire in a starboard engine and then a fire in the, in a, in a port engine. I mean, that's bizarre if you ask me. Well, it's very bizarre. In fact, the FAA has has the term the FAA uses is is not perfect storm. It's it's a black swan. They call it a black swan incident. A black it, swan it, it event. It's just a. They they said the chance. In fact, they quoted. They said the chance of losing three engines before this is before was one in a ten million chance. Good God. Three in, was one, and of course it happened. But but so that means this was the one in ten million chance that it happened. Basically, by almost ten o'clock that night. Uh, Captain Murray was operating on only he he had two engines, but then that the the third engine failed, and as you just mentioned, and now it was a fait accompli that there was nothing else to do but to find a place to ditch, and uh, the seas were rough. Uh, I talked to uh, years ago before Sullen before Sully's miracle on the Hudson, and and the Hudson was very calm that day even. I actually met a 767 pilot uh, just by mm-hmm. chance uh, in an airport hotel bar, and, and uh, we got to chatting. We started discussing, you know, ditching and how uh, the 767 is designed. I actually did a Forbes piece on this, and it's still up. And on the 767 is designed to, to do, a, con- uh, you know, a ditching in the event that it loses all four engines. Uh, it loses uh, both engines because it's a two-engine aircraft. And uh, this uh, 767 pilot, and I've forgotten the airline he worked for, uh, said that, you know, something he had thought about 
quite 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 a bit. Not because he didn't have confidence in the aircraft, but just you know, running over in his head. That's the interesting thing. I mean, these aircraft are designed to make water landings. Well, they're absolutely designed to make water landings. They start off to make they start off as seaplanes, as flying boats, as you know. And I think I think maybe that's why they they're. they're their basic uh, construction is called a hull and not a chassis, like a Ford Model T. Um, uh, uh, the, the, when they got started, as you know, you're, you're, you, you've spent a lot of time on this as well. There weren't airports when Pan Am was flying. There weren't proper land terrestrial airports. There were seaports. That's right. So um, it all start. It all started as flying boats with hulls. And um, so um, now, of course, people think about it. Uh, you know, landing on water. Oh my gosh! But I mean, again, Murray was rated to fly amphibians, land and water, or seaplanes on water. So, so um, it was it was par for the course for these kind of early aviators to land on on water. In fact, some of them did it more often than they did on land. At an altitude of about seven hundred and fifty feet, Murray nodded toward the water. You write and said, "There, that spot looks ideal. The longest trough feasible, just beyond the second approaching swell." he saw an unexpected gift, a long, relatively flat stretch of water. And he told his uh, crewmate, I don't have the, the stomach to look beyond that. <laughs> that next swell, I'm going to make it there. And he, and he did. And he apparently made a very good landing, as he, best he, as he, he made, could he under made a, the circumstances. Again, this is other pilots. This is the RAF. This is the Coast Guard, Canadian. They said he made, a, again, he stuck a 1 in 10 million uh, landing. I mean, it was serrated. You know, uh, the physics of it were like landing on concrete. It, he didn't have, uh, you know, he couldn't couldn't really see. The rain was really heavy. The survivors who survived said that the rain was coming down. He said they were, quote, raining like mad. Um, and uh, and he was going against the ditching the ditching manual. So for him to have planned to, you know, to, to make that final kind of quarterback option where he landed when he saw that that trough to land, uh it, it was it was unbelievable sticking of a landing. I mean, uh, really, uh, really remarkable. And 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 the and the and the um, the records reflect it. The the records in the studies by the Coast Guard, uh, by the by the RAF pilots and and people like that said, oh my gosh. I mean, uh, it, it, they they don't like to say miracle because it was just incredible airmanship. But it was uh, it was as close, I guess, to a miracle with a little M as you can get. And Captain Murray uh, actually was able to make it uh, he went back in i mean amazingly after he he got uh, out of the cockpit he went back to check on uh, the crew uh, the passenger cabin and this, and you described that in the book and then he was able to actually take a gulp of air and and surface uh in the north atlantic at himself at 10:20 p.m. Uh, local time and uh you say you write that he was uh, surrounded by, immersed in as much in aviation fuel and hydraulic fuel as seawater, with his unfastened, uninflated life vest more an impediment than an aid. He gagged as he fought to keep his head above the nauseating brew. And the plane had five rafts, but what only one was functioning? Out of or one only one was it able to be used by the survivors? Yeah, the plane had four rafts, two two rafts stowed in each wing, and one called a spare raft. And the spare raft is the only one is the one that fifty one made it on board. And one of the ones in the wing was was at least one of them was occupied by a stewardess. Um, they found her uh, unfortunately uh, dead. So, uh, but I think the important there's really this is kind of a a two step. Uh, 
incident. It was the ditching uh, of the plane and everyone got off alive, which is just miraculous. Every, all 76 got off alive and into the water off the wing in the middle of the night. No rafts were visible. Zero rafts were visible. Um, and then they lost uh, over, the, over the course of time. People couldn't make it. They couldn't find the rafts. Uh, the life preservers were faulty. The, and, uh, so, um, yeah, so they only uh, 51 people made it on board one raft and one stewardess at least made it on another uh, uh, raft. Um, and the incredible yeah. and the incredible thing that you write is that the the raft that they actually made it on was upside down. They didn't have the normal aids. No, they didn't. They didn't have like flare. That. They didn't have flares. Water. Light, the lights were underwater. All these things, it, because that that raft had to be semi semi manual. It had to be uh, blown. It wasn't automatically blown up. It had to be semi semi automatically blown up. And uh, and and the water was so rough. The waves were up sometimes over twenty five feet that it, it popped up and flipped upside down. And before they even noticed it, there were like 15 people on board. And then there was a big debate about whether they should flip it over. We can second guess that till the cows come home, but basically, uh, you know, who knows if they, if, you know, if they made the right decision or not. Yeah, you, you can second guess that, but most people I've spoken with, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert is they say, because, because for some reason, the combination of the ballast of all the people, supposed to hold 20 maximum 25 held 51 the the concave nature or the unexpected nature it probably saved them it may have saved them but um but who knows you're right who knows they they were actually rescued by a swiss freighter now this is uh, i'm a bit confused about the timing on this so at the time of the crash and at the the time that captain murray emerged from the from the hole uh himself it was 10 42 local time how long after did the swiss freighter uh, rescue the people in the raft first of all when the swiss freighter was 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 gotten a hold of it was chugging along the opposite direction at eight miles per hour and it didn't know whether it would and the initial eta was about 13 hours away the captain uh, an italian captain was very heroic and, and and beautiful seamanship and he and he turned it around changed the oil flow was did an amazing job and he got to, he got beside the raft in about he got beside the raft in about five uh, uh, five and a half hours. However, he couldn't board it. He couldn't heave to because it was too rough. So it took an hour for everyone to get off uh, the raft on board the uh, the uh, freighter. So uh, people basically uh, people were in the water, and because the raft there was like three feet of water in the raft, blood and all that nasty stuff, oil, aviation fuel. Um, People were in the in the cold water, which at one point in time it, it varied. It was it was between the mid 40s and and 50 51 degrees for six and a half hours. 48 people, survived. including the captain. Uh, 27 survived. went to Antwerp and 17 Ireland, Germany, and England, including Captain Murray. Yeah, including Captain Murray. Right. Okay, you write that by the mid 60s, the move away from piston engines to jet engines was almost certainly hastened by the Flying Tiger flight. Nine two three. Yeah, I think I think it's if you look at at yeah, absolutely because you have again you had the seven oh seven right, um, which came online in fifty seven, and uh, the seven thirty seven first appeared in sixty seven, um, and um, uh, the failure rate of the seven thirty seven just plummeted. You had fewer people, you had more efficiency, you had you know much higher passenger counts, quicker trips, so. People, um, 
it was cheaper, better, faster, sexier, all that stuff. So um, while the planes were still uh, worked, um, uh, the, the pistons really were confined more to, um, uh, they were still being used by the Air Force and NORAD stretched across to, to you know, uh, to intercept and the uh, the Russian bear bomber. There's Tupolovs again <laughs> coming in <laughs> yeah. over from Alaska. <laughs> yeah. Final question. What puzzles you most about about anything about this aviation tragedy? What puzzles me most? Uh, well, I think there's maybe a tie. One is the disappearance of the files. Uh, there were probably 10,000 pages of files, including photographs, logs, affidavits, all the stuff. And they were all they were all stolen. Good. Gosh. So why? And but probably equally is uh, Captain Sullenberger did an incredible job, right? Incredible job. Right. In, in, in the Hudson. It was, you know, very different kind of apples and oranges a little bit. But the miracle on the Hudson, the miracle on the Hudson. Right. Right. So so in 62, Murray was called the miracle pilot all over the media as well. It was number one story in the world before the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I didn't read. Maybe you did. Bruce, I didn't read a single report of what Captain Sullenberger did that mentioned Tiger 923. That's puzzling to me. That's puzzling to me. And uh, the Tiger 923, at the time, it got a lot of media until it, it, you write the, that President Kennedy took a break from the brewing crises in, the, in Cuba and Mississippi regarding the, the murder of the, the three uh, uh, right, uh, right. Uh, yeah. Social he, workers yeah, he, who were who were trying to register if, people. If you compare yeah. the if you compare the, the the page ink page the column inches as you call in journalism, right. yeah. you know between John Glenn's splashdown in February '62 and Tiger nine two three, Tiger nine two three got more column inches, believe it or not, at the time. Then 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 uh, I did a comparison of the metrics, and it was uh, it absolutely was the number one news story for it was on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, fifty million people were watching it, so. It was a number one story in the world for about 48 hours, 72 but, hours. But and then to, it was a pretty much eclipsed by the Cuban Missile Crisis. But to be honest, uh, one thing that attracted me to the story was the fact that I, I was unaware of it. I mean, I, me too. I mean, maybe I had heard about it sometime in the past and it just kind of crossed my path. And I, but uh, until, your, until I read your book, uh, I was unaware of it. So I wish you well with the book. Eric, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Uh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, there. I mean, I think the the best way is probably on the on the the website, which has a, a, a contact. But it, that's you know, tigerinthesea.com. Do you want to mention your Twitter feed as well? Yeah, Eric Lindner one is a Twitter feed. Thank you, and I'm also on Goodreads. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Eric Lindner, thanks for giving us a better understanding of this tragic bit of aviation history. Thank you very much for having me. I'm humbled and honored to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>